This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Lara Shekadamian. Dr. Shekadamian is the Chief of Critical Care at the Texas Children's Hospital, and she is Professor of Pediatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine. Lara, welcome. Thank you. Lara, you're known to colleagues around the world for your mastery of cardiopulmonary interactions. And um, I'm sure I speak for many colleagues to, to want to know, how did you become interested in this? And what are the important historical events in understanding cardiopulmonary interaction that we should know? Well, my journey began more than 20 years ago now. I was uh, training at the Royal Brompton Hospital in cardiology and intensive care. And uh, one of the big questions that we used to try and answer and certainly ask all the time was why some children after certain types of surgery for congenital heart disease who had good cardiac functions seemed to linger on the ICU, they spent longer on a ventilator, they were more, they, had, they were more, less responsive to inotropes and required fluid administration much more than other children. And so the two lesions that we were particularly interested in at the time were children after Fontan type operations. Those children have a passive pulmonary blood flow to the lungs. They don't have a right ventricle, so they require a low pressure circuit to drive blood flow into the lungs and then that will drive then their cardiac output. Some children after Fallows tetralogy repair, it's a complete repair. They obviously have a two-chambered heart, but again, they struggled with what was a diastolic problem of their heart. So they'd have good systolic function and impaired or abnormal diastolic function. So back in the day in the Brompton, there was a lot of work done in the mid-1990s trying to characterize these differences in Fallows tetralogy and in patients after Fontan operations. And a landmark paper from Shay Cullen and Andrew Reddington which was published in circulation more than 20 years ago now, characterized the diastolic abnormalities in the fallow patients. And what they found was a very typical flow of pulmonary blood, whereby um, there was late diastolic blood flow that was coincident with atrial systole. So you can see on this schematic, the P wave on the ECG. Shortly after that, there's forward blood flow into the lungs, into the pulmonary arteries. And this was exaggerated with spontaneous inspiration. When we look at the physiology of these patients, their progress through the ICU, the patients that had this restrictive physiology were more acidotic, as you can see in the table. They were oliguric. They often were hypotensive, more tachycardic, and they spent longer in the ICU. And what's very interesting is when we provide positive pressure to these patients, which is obviously typical after cardiac surgery, that forward pulmonary blood flow that their cardiac output is very dependent upon disappears during positive pressure ventilation. So what we find here is that our typical post-operative management was potentially detrimental to these patients. And if we move on to patients after Fontan operations, we see again abnormalities of pulmonary blood flow, very different circulation, but again a diastolic phenomenon that is critically influenced by ventilation. 
I would encourage anyone watching this to refer to Fontan's original paper in 1971. He described his first three patients in whom he did a complex atriopulmonary connection, as shown in the diagram, and he recommended that we stop ventilating these patients as early as possible because positive pressure prevented their central venous return and therefore impeded their cardiac output. And when we look at some work that was done at the Brompton a couple of decades later by Dan Penny and again Andrew Reddington, they showed very beautifully, I think, that pulmonary blood flow in Fontan patients who are, in, who are spontaneously breathing is significantly exaggerated during inspiration and then pretty much disappears during expiration. And what they also showed is that if Falsalva maneuver is done by these patients, pulmonary blood flow pretty much stops. So one of the things that is obviously very in interesting to all of us as intensivists is how two children can be hypotensive, acidotic, with end organ dysfunction or failure in the ICU with two very, very different looking hearts. The patient on the left is a child with dilated cardiomyopathy, very poor systolic cardiac function, on the verge of needing mechanical support. And the patient on the, the echo on the right is from a patient after a Fontan operation, very brisk systolic function. And you'd wonder why this child is so acidotic and unwell. And hopefully in the rest of this talk, we'll discuss how ventilation can impact these patients and how we would manage their respiratory support with very, very different ventilatory strategies. So I think before um, talking about therapeutic interventions with mechanical ventilation, it's really important to understand how the heart and the lung interact in health. So in people like us, in healthy children, or in older patients with intact cardiac function. And really to understand this, we need to go back in history. Some of the early physiological experiments that were done in humans looking at the interactions between ventilation and the circulation came from Andre Cournon's group in the 1940s. Cournon and his colleagues did some absolutely landmark research looking at how different types of positive pressure breathing, as they called it, impacted the cardiovascular system in healthy individuals. And this was shortly after World War II, and it's, it's not a coincidence. It's because during that time, there was the um, design and the early uses of positive pressure mask apparatus, potentially to deliver simply pure oxygen at altitude to some of the uh, pilots. So Cornon and his group used several of these devices to look at the interaction between the heart and the lungs during positive pressure breathing. Now, what they found was very interesting, very relevant, and something that we all take for granted today. So if you look at the graphs, they show rather unusual looking um, respiratory ventilatory patterns compared to what we use nowadays. But I just draw your attention to the different mean airway pressures during the three ventilatory strategies. In the lowest graph, there's a low mean airway pressure of around six. And in the upper two graphs, longer inspiratory times, a reversed inspiratory to expiratory ratio, and a higher mean airway pressure. And in those two strategies, with a higher airway pressure and longer inspiratory times, the cardiac output was impeded by around 15% in, in both, both modalities. Whereas with a low mean airway pressure and a shorter inspiratory time, cardiac output was maintained. So what Cornan's group did, and I'll just draw your attention to the degree of invasive monitoring that he performed in these healthy volunteers. He had brachial artery pressure measurements, right ventricular pressure measurements, and pleural pressure measurements as well as mask pressure measurements, um, but produced some beautiful data that showed very nicely how the changing cardiac output was 
proportional to the change in net ventricular filling pressure of the right ventricle. So if we move on now to the ventilation in the left heart, I think the key here, and it's something that a lot of people have struggled with getting their heads around, but I try and keep it simple, is to understand the impact of transmural pressure, the concept of transmural pressures, and then their impact on the uh, heart. So simply put, a transmural pressure is the difference between ventricular chamber pressure and the extra cavitary pressure, which could be pericardial or pleural. So when we breathe quietly at atmospheric pressure or around that, our transmural left ventricular pressure, which is equivalent to the afterload that the left ventricle sees, is about the same as LV pressure. If we breathe in deeply against a closed glottis, so we perform a Muller maneuver, or even take a very deep breath in and make our intrathoracic pressure very negative, that produces, let's say, an intrathoracic pressure or a pleural pressure of minus 20. So the transmural pressure then becomes 140. So that deep breath, that Muller maneuver, increases the transmural left ventricular pressure and therefore the left ventricular afterload. If instead we provide a positive pressure, a positive airway pressure and a positive uh, pleural pressure, with positive pressure ventilation obviously, then the transmural pressure drops. So that's favorable to the left ventricle. And the last schematic there just shows the impact a vasodilator would have on those transmural pressures. So we drop the blood pressure to 100 with a vasodilator. We then perform whatever maneuver gives us the very negative um, pleural pressure. And we restore the transmural pressure to 120, so around the baseline before the blood pressure was dropped with a drug. So to cut a long story short, that's all about how afterload is increased during negative pressure airway maneuvers. And I think that begins to explain why patients with a healthy heart can get into trouble when they develop acute airway obstruction, so the bad asthmatic with a healthy heart. We get children, obviously, who have a significant acute aspiration episode, children who develop what we call negative pressure pulmonary edema early after extubation, with subglottic narrowing, with airway edema, etc. So when we look at some of the literature on the effects of intrathoracic pressure on the left ventricle, Again, it's all about going back in time. There's no need to re repeat some of the landmark studies that have been done. But here's one that shows the impact of a Muller maneuver on the healthy left ventricle. So this study here simply asked a group of adults to perform a Muller maneuver and some very simple echo parameters were performed. So end diastolic volume, end systolic volume and ejection fraction. And what you can see from the graphs is that a Muller maneuver early phase and the late phase are associated with an increase in end diastolic volume, an increase in end systolic volume, and not surprisingly, an, a reduction in ejection fraction. And this is basically because the left ventricle is seeing increased afterload. And as you can see in the schematic, it's starting to dilate as it's becoming overfilled and unable to, to eject a consistent stroke volume. So if we look at the impact of the Muller maneuver, the previous illustration was in healthy hearts. How does this impact patients with congestive heart failure? Well, clearly less well. Um, when we perform a Muller maneuver, the graph here shows again the esophageal pressure, which is the top, top graph for all three conditions, is maintained during a breath hold, but as soon as the Muller is produced, it falls to minus 20 and then minus 40. So that's an extreme negative intrathoracic pressure 
probably similar to what we might see in an acute airway obstructive episode, a post-extubation obstruction episode or laryngospasm, or even in a very bad asthmatic. So if you do this to patients with um, heart disease, what happens is that their transmural pressure obviously goes up, their afterload therefore increases, and their stroke volume in index, which is the marker of um, cardiac index, will fall and continue to fall as the Muller maneuver is increased. And just showing this in a different way during a breath hold, obviously, cardiac output doesn't change because stroke volume is not changing. But as we go negative with our intrathoracic pressure, or as they go negative with their intrathoracic pressure, cardiac index drops. And the more negative the pressure, the further the drop in the cardiac index. So, Lara, that's a very... Um helpful overview um, of really the, the seminal studies and the importance of the transmural wall gradient for the spontaneously breathing patient and, of course, the patient transitioning from positive pressure to spontaneous ventilation. So if I understand it, the free wall of the ventricle basically has more work to do to collapse against that transmural wall gradient when there is an excessive negative pleural pressure. And, of course, correspondingly, if the pleural pressure rises, then the free wall can more easily contract, produce better stroke volume, produce better cardiac output. So now the question becomes, how do you use this concept in your daily practice, for example, in the care of a postoperative congenital heart repair patient? If we, if we now focus on the congenital heart postoperative population, I'd like to start with patients after right heart surgery. We already mentioned the um, usual and expected cardiopulmonary interaction after Fontan operations and patients after fallows to tralogy. And just to remind everybody, we're talking about a diastolic problem in patients whose pulmonary blood flow and therefore their cardiac output is exquisitely sensitive to changes in, in, in intrathoracic pressure. And both groups of patients will almost always benefit from spontaneous, spontaneous respiration and a gentle negative intrathoracic pressure. So here's a video that I showed earlier on of a patient who's struggling after a Fontan operation. And actually this patient was not far from needing mechanical support. They were hypotensive, acidotic, oliguric, cold, and really at the point of entering um, end organ dysfunction and failure. The heart's working great. The systolic function looks normal. So what's the problem here? Well, I've already alluded to the important heart-lung interactions in Fontan patients. Here's another illustration. So when we look at how positive pressure ventilation, I showed you a Valsalva before, and this is positive pressure ventilation in a Fontan patient. I'll show you this, this echo here. It's a transthoracic echo showing forward pulmonary blood flow above the baseline and positive pressure inspiration shown as an arrow for each positive pressure breath. Now what this echo shows very nicely is that even very low levels of positive pressure ventilation there's a phasic pulmonary arterial blood flow that is lost during every inspiration. It comes back during expiration and it's lost again during inspiration. And this typically would be at ventilatory settings of something like 17 or 18 on a peep of perhaps four or five. So low pressure settings, pretty typical for a post-op cardiac patient. But if these patients are struggling, what can we do? We want them to breathe spontaneously. Typically nowadays, we do allow them to breathe spontaneously. Many of our patients are now extubated on table or immediately after arrival in the ICU. But some of the work that I did back in the 1990s looked at the potential to mimic 
spontaneous respiration in these patients using negative pressure ventilation techniques. Here's a photo of a child in whom we enrolled into our research study uh, for negative pressure ventilation and the device you see on the baby is the Hayek oscillator. It's a negative pressure cuirass, it externally ventilates the patients using a negative mean intrathoracic pressure throughout the respiratory cycle. And some of the equipment to the right of the patient is um, part of the mass spectrometry gas collection um, equipment that we use to measure direct fit cardiac output. So when we perform negative pressure ventilation on these kids, we mimic spontaneous respiration. And you can see that there's a real exaggeration of forward pulmonary blood flow throughout the respiratory cycle, but particularly during inspiration. And that augmentation translates into a very substantial increase in cardiac output. You can see after 45 minutes of this mode of ventilation, we increase cardiac output by more than 50%. And I think most people would agree that that would be much more than we would achieve with standard inotropic or vasodilator or other therapies that are very rarely indicated in this setting. Moving on to patients after Fallows tetralogy, again, I already showed you the importance of forward diastolic pulmonary arterial flow that occurs with atrial systole in these patients and how that's exaggerated by spontaneous inspiration. So again, in a similar study, we used the negative pressure device to augment pulmonary blood flow in the tetralogy of fallow patients after surgery. And we had similar results. Negative pressure ventilation significantly enhances forward pulmonary blood flow and as a useful byproduct also shortens the, limit, shortens the duration of pulmonary regurgitation. And once again, that translates into a really significant increase in cardiac output. Cardiac output in these patients increased by more than two-thirds after 45 minutes of negative pressure ventilation. So these results are both impressive and really, I think, a very good illustration of how important cardiopulmonary interactions are in these patients and how important it is to really look at the cardiopulmonary physiology and not just reach for an inotrope or even more fluid in patients that simply don't need it. So I guess the takeaway from that is, should we routinely use these ventilators after cardiac surgery in these patients? And I think the answer is definitely not. But the, my advice is respect the cardiopulmonary interaction, extubate them as early as possible, have them spontaneously breathing if they need to be on a ventilator, use minimum intrathoracic pressure, and that will stop us getting into trouble most of the time. Um. Lara, that's very interesting. So you've translated this to actual practice. Can you tell us a little more about your experience at Texas Children's Hospital and early extubation of these patients after cardiac surgery? Yes. Um, well, at Texas Children's, we are very aggressive with our Fontan patients. The majority of our Fontan patients would be extubated on table. A real minority would be extubated in the ICU. We would certainly worry if a child is not off the ventilator within about six hours after a Fontan operation and start to, start to wonder if there are other things going on that perhaps are disturbing the hemodynamics other than the impact of positive pressure ventilation. So Fontan patients for us and many units in the country and around the world will rarely if ever be ventilated in the ICU early after surgery. With Fallows Tetralogy patients, our practice has changed over the last few years. And part of that is related to our opportunity to collaborate in a really important prospective QI-type research study that um, we were able to participate in through being part of the 
paediatric net heart network. The Collaborative Learning Study was the name of this study and it was aimed at introducing a clinical practice guideline across multiple institutions aimed at extubating children early after two benchmark cardiac lesions. Um, they were tetralogy of fallow repair, for many of the reasons I've already discussed, and coarctation repair in infancy. All the children enrolled in this clinical practice guideline were under a year of age and clearly had no obvious contraindications to early extubation. And the way we went about developing this guideline was to learn from other centres, so we visited other participating centres and really put together all the information about intraoperative practice, post-operative ICU practice, use it as an opportunity to learn aspects of other centres practice and to be able to teach each other as well. And came up with a CPG that we were able to introduce in early 2014. And alongside the five participating centres, we had five control centres who did not introduce the practice guideline. And the aim of the guideline, as I said, was to extubate our patients either on table or within six hours of coming back to the ICU after surgery. So here are the results. And I'll take you through the graphs. Um, the active sites were the five sites that, sites that participated and the control sites were the five that did not change practice during the two-year study period. We had a year of data collection pre-protocol and then a year post-protocol. Pre-protocol, around 12% of all patients were extubated during that time window and certainly in our hospital we rarely, if ever, were extubating those patients with that, within that time window. Post-protocol, during the year after the protocol was introduced, the active sites were extubating just around two-thirds of their patients within that six-hour window, whereas the control sites, the ventilation time didn't change. And if we focus down on tetralogy of fallow patients, you can see that nearly three-quarters of the patients enrolled in active sites were extubated within six hours, whereas in the controls, the percentage didn't change. So there are lots of advantages to early extubation that we think of. Obviously, the heart-lung interactions, it's, it's intuitive, it should work, it should be the best thing to do for many of our patients. But then there are other advantages. For example, the use of IV sedation, the time to the first enteral feed, even, mark, even parameters like ICU length of stay, even hospital stay. And um, what we found that in the test sites, but not the control sites, the use of opiates, benzodiazepines, and even dexmedetomidine went down significantly during the year after the protocol was introduced compared to the prior year. And we were also very pleased to see our time to the first enteral feeds, so oral or nasogastric feeds, went down significantly after the introduction of the protocol. So I think all in all, we've shown that not only can we do a collaborative study and introduce a practice guideline between multiple sites, but we've, we really did prove our hypothesis that this could be done, it could be done safely, we didn't increase the reintubation rates, which would be a natural concern for all participating sites, and that we could potentially progress our patients through to their advantage much more quickly. I'd like to turn now and ask a question to our colleagues around the world. In your response, could you first please identify your city and country location? And the question is this. In your practice, approximately what percentage of patients do you extubate in the operating room after a Fontan operation? And what percentage do you extubate in the intensive care unit after that surgery? We're back now with Dr. Shekademian. Lara, that's really fascinating data. Uh, makes me wonder um, uh, about how quickly that will become more prevalent at other centers. Um, 
What's the situation with single ventricle physiology, which of course is a step complicated yet further? So the single ventricle population are, they have very complex physiology. I think every year that goes by we learn a little bit more about them. I think we thought we knew it all in the late 90s and then we reinvented it in the early 2000s and we continue to learn and to modify our practice as we understand more. So this diagram here is a simple schematic of a child of the heart after stage one palliation, Norwood operation, where the pulmonary blood flow is controlled by a fixed diameter systemic to pulmonary shunt. The aorta is enlarged so that uh, the neo-aorta can adequately provide systemic flow. And you can see the diminutive left ventricle, which really doesn't contribute to the circulation significantly. And um, a wide open atrial septum so that there is very good intracardiac mixing. So in this physiology where one ventricle is supplying blood to the coronaries, to the pulmonary and to the systemic circulations, how on earth do we, uh, do we control how much blood goes to each vascular bed? And really it's determined by the relative resistances of each vascular bed and obviously to, an ex to, a significant, to an extent also by ventricular function. So this early work from the mid-1990s, and that's certainly when I started look looking after Norwood patients, shows how respiratory gas mixtures can impact the pulmonary to systemic flow. So the y-axis on this graph shows the percentage change in the QP to QS, so the pulmonary to systemic flow. And the x-axis, if you like, shows the different conditions. So this is an animal model. The animals were placed on bypass for a period of time and measurements were made pre and post bypass of relative flows. So as you'd imagine, 100% oxygen produced significant pulmonary vasodilation. Nitric oxide did to a lesser extent. And then a hypoxic gas, 10% oxygen, which is created by adding nitrogen to the ventilator mix and added carbon dioxide will produce a significant reduction in the pulmonary to systemic flow. So in those days, our thinking was let's minimize pulmonary flow in order to optimize systemic flow. So many of us who were doing intensive care in the late 90s, even the early 2000s, were uh, more than occasionally sorry, adding nitrogen to the ventilator circuit to produce 18 or 17% oxygen to bring down the saturations into the 80s or even to the high 70s. Other, other units were adding CO2 to the ventilator circuit. And there was some interesting data that came out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the early 2000s that actually looked at how hypoxia and hypercarbia impacted both pulmonary to systemic flow, but also systemic oxygen delivery in patients after with hyperplastic left heart syndrome before surgery. And what they found was that both conditions reduced the QPQS, which is what we all used to like to see, but only hypercarbia, so only added CO2, actually impacted to any positive extent the markers of systemic oxygen delivery. So for many years around that time, even into the early 2000s, we used to focus very, very hard on manipulating pulmonary blood flow. We used to avoid alkalosis, we used to even run them acidotic deliberately. We used to add hypoxic gas to keep the oxygen saturation down. But then really our understanding improved over the next decade. And this diagram here shows how our, how our approach has changed significantly. 
Nowadays, our approach to hyperplastic left heart syndrome, to single ventricle physiology, before and early after surgery, is to focus on systemic perfusion, not to play with the pulmonary blood flow directly. So we run them with a normal pH. We, don't, we avoid alkalosis, but inspired oxygen is fine. But supplemental gases, carbon dioxide and nitrogen, have disappeared. And I think probably no, there are very few, if any, units that still use this strategy in their, in their perioperative patients. So I think an appreciation of the importance of op optimizing systemic oxygen delivery has, has um, increased. And also we've learned to understand the drawbacks of some of our assumptions that we used to make. You know, when you measure QPQS, you really should have an, an aortic pulmonary arterial saturation of true mixed venous and a pulmonary venous saturation. And the only assumption in that situation that's okay to make is that the aorta and pulmonary artery have the same saturation because of the shunt that's between them. Everything else is a dangerous assumption potentially to make, which has associated drawbacks that can really uh, increase the difference between the estimated and the measured QPQS. So I think um, we all agree now that careful titration oxygen is fine because the pulmonary venous saturation may not be 95%, it may be 90, it may be 85%. And in those circumstances, you are making a huge overestimation of the QPQS to the patient's detriment. So we now believe oxygen is not the enemy. So patients who have recovered after the stage one palliation, their next stage of surgery is the bidirectional glen. And that could follow a Norwood type palliation. It may follow a palliation with a PA band in different um, diagnostic groups. Ventilation, again, it's a, it's a fascinating interaction we see after bidirectional glen between ventilation and the cardiovascular system, um, but it's different. Um, glen patients don't have excessive pulmonary blood flow. They have a QPQS that is no more than one to one. It's typically 0.6 or 0.7 to one. So what governs their systemic cardiac output? They have a passive pulmonary blood flow from the upper body veins through the SVC into the pulmonary arteries. And the upper body perfusion determines their pulmonary blood flow, therefore, and their systemic oxygenation. So typically with these patients, again, we extubate them early because positive pressure will potentially impede pulmonary blood flow and reduce systemic oxygen delivery as a result. And just like we were saying for Fontan patients, it's common practice now to extubate these children either on the operating table or early after, within a few hours of arriving on the ICU. But again, this is a group of patients, if they need ventilation, we certainly should always target ventilatory parameters to op optimize and manipulate their systemic blood flow. And I'll show you some data that elegantly demonstrates that. When we're thinking of um, pulmonary blood flow, cardiac output, systemic oxygen delivery in the Glen population, we have to look at what determines their cerebral blood flow, because two-thirds of their venous return is going to come from their upper body. They're all under one, and they've got a lot of upper, blood, upper body blood flow compared to the lower body. So given that cerebral blood flow and SVC return are such key determinants of pulmonary blood flow and systemic oxygen delivery after Glen operations, let's just remind ourselves what are the key determinants of cerebral blood flow in health as well as in disease. And this schematic here demonstrates quite nicely the key determinants. So hypoxia and hypercapnia. 
And in the Glen population, I'll show you in the next couple of slides how important CO2 control is in terms of determining their cerebral blood flow and systemic oxygenation. So this study here from Toronto that was published in 2004 looked specifically at the effects of carbon dioxide. So it was added carbon dioxide on systemic oxygenation, systemic oxygen delivery, and cerebral oxygen delivery and pulmonary vascular hemodynamics after Glen operations. This was in a small group of patients who had just come back from the operating room, still ventilated after bidirectional Glens. And what the investigators found were that all of these parameters of good systemic perfusion were improved with a higher CO2. So they ran them with added CO2 up to 45 and then 55 millimeters of mercury and found that systemic arterial oxygenation mixed venous oxygenation, and cerebral near-infrared spectroscopy saturations were all best at a higher PaCO2. And I think this has become part of our everyday bread and butter care of post-operative Glen patients. We allow them to run a slightly acidotic, we let their CO2 rise, and we typically see improvements in systemic oxygenation under those conditions. Clearly then the key is to wake them up and let them, let them be extubated and further optimize their cardiopulmonary interactions. But while they're intubated, we do let them run more acidotic than perhaps we did 15 or so years ago because we would have thought that CO2 had a greater impact on the pulmonary vascular resistance and maybe not thought as much about the brain as we did about the lungs in those days. Let's turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask you a question. In your response, please first identify your city and country location. The question is this. In your intensive care unit, do you care for patients with single ventricle physiology? If so, what ventilatory strategies do you use for these patients? We're back now with Dr. Lara Shekadamian. So Lara, can we move on to um, the approach to the patient with normal anatomy, but the acute onset of ventricular dysfunction, systolic dysfunction. How do you think about that patient? This is probably the best studied population because where do we most typically see it? It's going to be in adults. And this is really one scenario where it's, I think it's reasonable to extrapolate from adult data and apply at least the physiologic kind of concepts to our population. And we do see acute decompensated heart failure in our, in our population. We see acute myocarditis. We, we may see acute on chronic heart failure. For example, a patient who has been stable with a cardiomyopathy suddenly decompensates and goes into acute ventricular failure. Um, and occasionally we see it early after congenital heart surgery where the ventricle simply is not performing um, adequately. And this is a difference. These patients have systolic dysfunction as opposed to the diastolic problems that we talked about earlier with fallow patients or Fontan patients. What cardiopulmonary interactions matter in acute decompensated heart failure? Well, these hearts are preload sensitive. We don't want to fill them too much. We don't want to fill either side too much. They're afterload sensitive. We want to minimize afterload on both sides of the heart, particularly the left. They typically have pulmonary venous congestion because of high left atrial pressures. Some may have some mitral regurgitation, which can further worsen that. They breathe hard. They have tachypnea. They have increased work of breathing. Every breath that they take in may generate a much more negative intrathoracic pressure than you or I, for example. And they have an increased respiratory oxygen consumption. So their respiratory muscles, which in 
The resting state in healthy individuals might be around 3% of the total cardiac output. In patients with acute heart failure, that fraction might go up to about 20% of their cardiac output. And it's a redistribution of flow. Their heart is marginal at best, and suddenly one-fifth of their systemic cardiac output is, is feeding the intercostal and diaphragmatic muscles. This is a multifactorial um, picture that we see in these patients. So what role does ventilation have in these patients? Well, I showed you earlier on how even in the healthy heart or the heart with chronic dysfunction, congestive heart failure, a simple Müller maneuver can increase the transmural pressure on that heart, increase the afterload, and contribute to some of the ventricular dysfunction that we see. So what role might CPAP have in these patients? CPAP will provide a continuous positive airway pressure um, as everyone knows. And from the data I've also already shown you, one would hypothesize that CPAP in these patients will improve the conditions by reducing work of breathing potentially and lessening the transmural impact, pressure impact and therefore reducing the afterload on the left ventricle. And uh, this paper here from the Toronto group, from Bradley's group, who've published a huge amount on heart failure and the role of non-invasive ventilation on both echo findings and clinical outcomes. Um, they looked at the impact of CPAP on, on healthy individuals and compared this with the impact of CPAP on patients with congestive heart failure. And what they showed, what the graph shows quite nicely, is the impact on transmural left ventricular pressure, which is minimized with the addition of CPAP in the presence of heart failure. So the next question is, how might this impact an outcome that matters to everyone, like um, mortality or in the more acute phase, this is acute pulmonary edema potentially in the emergency department, um, how might it impact an endpoint of um, the need for intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation? And this meta-analysis here was published 10 years ago. I think it still holds good. It's an important summary of the multiple randomized trials of CPAP or BiPAP versus standard therapy. Standard therapy being face mask oxygen or, or nothing, I guess, along with normal medical interventions like diuretics, vasodilators, etc. And what they found was that both modalities, both CPAP and bilevel positive pressure, reduced the um, likelihood of progressing to intubation. So an important, very important um, positive finding. When they then looked at mortality, it was interesting that CPAP came out statistically significant in terms of prevention of mortality in that very acute phase, with BiPAP only tending to do so. But our take home from these studies that non-invasive ventilation definitely has a role in the emergency management, acute management of decompensated heart failure. And that should apply in children. There are no randomized studies in children, to my knowledge as yet, that have um, examined this. But the physiology is similar. And certainly, the last thing we want to do is intubate these children, because the simple practice of intubating a patient with such marginal hemodynamics can be to precipitate acute deterioration, even cardiac arrest in some situations. So when we think beyond the acute, you know, we have a lot of patients who have dilated cardiomyopathy, chronic end-stage heart failure. They may be waiting for transplant assessment, waiting for transplantation, potentially trying to stave off uh, mechanical support with VAD devices. 
how might long-term non-invasive positive pressure ventilation help them? So in theory, from everything I've just showed you, it should have a role, especially in the setting which is very common in adults, perhaps less so in children of, of uh, central sleep apnea, which is you know, significant uh, comorbidity in the adult population. So again, we go to the uh, Toronto group um, who did an early study looking at long-term positive airways pressure with CPAP, looking at echo parameters of, um, of cardiac performance. So what they found was that after three months of overnight CPAP, these patients had an improved ejection fraction, they had a reduced mitral regurgitant fraction, and a reduced atrial natriuretic peptide level, which was a precursor to what we measure very commonly now, which is the BNP. That all looks good, um, certainly encouraging, and importantly, these patients often felt better. They would, re they would report improved walking, uh, exercise capacity, six-minute walks, etc. But then when we look at the long-term data in terms of survival, it's less encouraging. Ultimately, what are we trying to do with long-term non-invasive support? It's stave off sudden death or a slow death, I guess, and also transplantation. But what this randomized study, again, from the same group, from the Canadian um, investigators, showed that, unfortunately, after being randomized to CPAP versus just medical therapy without CPAP, there was no overall difference in outcome at, um, at five years. And really there was an, actually a slight advantage of CPAP in the very short term, but as these patients were followed up for two, three, four, even five years, the mortality was exactly the same. So unfortunately, while non-invasive ventilation clearly makes these patients feel better, those with central apnea, it will improve, it'll attenuate that problem improves their oxygenation, increase the echo dynamics, and as you can see here, it improves their six-minute walk, it doesn't impact survival. And the conclusion from that study was that we can't justify using CPAP to extend life, although clearly it will have a role for some patients in improving their symptomatology. So I guess if we're summarizing the role of non-invasive ventilation in adults, and I wish I could say in children from the literature, but as I said, there's very little, undoubtedly reduces the need for intubation, it improves the symptoms, exercise capacity, echo parameters, but no appreciable benefit in terms of survival or transplant-free survival. I'd like to turn now and ask a question to our colleagues around the world. In your response, could you first please identify your city and country location? And the question is this. In your practice, do you use non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, in other words, CPAP or BiPAP, in the acute management of patients with acute decompensated heart failure. Second, does your institution use long-term non-invasive ventilation in managing children with heart failure? We're back now with Dr. Lara Shekadamian, Chief of Critical Care at Texas Children's Hospital. So Dr. Shekadamian, that is a very um, helpful and interesting overview, but as you noted, there's very little data in the pediatric literature. So what is your practice or what would you recommend about the role of non-invasive ventilation in that setting? We all use it. It would be very unusual now to have an ICU without access to a CPAP BiPAP machine. Um, but unfortunately, as you say, there's no studies in pediatric heart failure. There are 
not even to my knowledge any published studies on um, the importance or otherwise of sleep apnea, obstructive apnea in this population. However, I think it's a, as a pragmatic kind of approach, it, it has to be, a, it, it, it for sure is going to be a useful bridge after extubation in some of our patients. So patients with anomalous coronary artery reimplantation who have very poor ventricular function perioperatively may be a population who'd benefit. Other examples would be patients who have a late arterial switch operation in whom their left ventricle is not adequately trained, as we put it. Um, provide a little bit of improvement, a little bit of afterload reduction, and that kind of protection from that dynamic change from positive pressure ventilation, often to pretty hard work with um, hard work breathing after extubation. Um, patients after mitral valve surgery who have big changes in loading conditions, obviously kids with dilated cardiomyopathy, if nothing else, for symptomatic help and some children who become quote-unquote inotrope dependent after cardiac surgery. We use positive pressure ventilation, we use non-invasive ventilation in those patients really just to avoid big swings in intrathoracic pressure and help with that afterload effect on the left ventricle. So I think if we have to summarize uh, what we've been talking about, um, Jeff, I think I hope the takeaway from this is for everyone to recognize the importance of how ventilation can impact the heart cardiovascular system in children with heart disease. Admittedly, a lot of our non-congenital heart data comes from adults, but some of those principles have to be applied every day. I think we could all we all see that ventilation is a hemodynamic tool. We can use it to optimize pulmonary blood flow and systemic oxygen delivery by manipulating our work of breathing, our preload, our afterload, and ventricular interactions. And I think just to put it into one simple sentence, just remember that ventilation can be your friend or your foe. Dr. Lara Shekadamian, uh, thank you so much for the work you've done over the last several decades. And thank you for this presentation today. It's a critical concept and you've made it more clear and put it in context for us. So thank you very much. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.